You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, isn't autumn the perfect time to play lots and lots of video games because it's just constantly raining anyway? Yes, sit on the couch, warm up your apartment or wherever you happen to live and boot up, I don't know, um, something that deeply looks into the psychological terror of having some kind of mental illness. Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not exactly to get ahead of ourselves here, but <laughs> not to get ahead of ourselves, but it's going to be pretty much about madness and it's going to be actually about pretty dire subjects, but interesting nonetheless, yes. because I'm, I'm doing my PhD on madness in video games. And that's why I'm especially excited about today's episode in which we're going to talk about true sight. We're going to have a guest in just a moment. Before we get into that, let me briefly mention that this is an independent podcast, and we do need some kind of financing. And that is why we have created Studying Pixels Plus, which is our Patreon program. And if you decide to support us there, then you earn, of course, our eternal gratitude. But also, you get all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You get a lovely sticker, which has our cute mascot Pixelcoon on it, and monthly plus episodes, some of which go into deeper questions of video game culture, or expand upon a particular series, and others actually help you study and write your thesis. So if you want to dive into that, then you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today, we're going to talk about the concept of true sight in video games. That is, maybe we could say the ability to see beyond the shared reality of daily life. Just as a simple example, think of the classical idea of the fortune teller who can see beyond what we commonly experience or what we would be able to experience. And to explore this concept of true sight, we're now joined by Dr. Sarah Stang. She's an assistant professor of game studies at Brock University in Canada. She's a feminist media scholar, and she has written her PhD dissertation titled Maiden, Mother, and Crone, 
abject female monstrosity in role-playing games. We will, of course, link that in the description. But now let's get into the conversation on True Sight. Hi, Sarah. Hi. So what does True Sight mean to you and in general? Yeah, so I borrowed the term True Sight from the tabletop role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons, uh, which I imagine most of your listeners have heard of. But I will define uh, the term. Um, In the article I published on First Person Scholar, I quote it. uh, So it's a spell which allows the caster to see the world as it actually is, which involves seeing through illusions and seeing invisible, displaced, and astral objects. So I use the term because it's kind of the most similar term I could find to what I'm talking about when it comes to these games that treat madness as a form of true sight, a form of magical power or ability that lets you see things as they really are or see things that other people can't, put together patterns. And in these games, it often allows you to solve puzzles and proceed. So it's kind of like instead of being just something debilitating, which we would usually consider, and I say usually consider, madness to be or mental illness to be, In this case, it would be something that enables us to see beyond what other people can see. That's right. It's kind of treated as a superpower. And I want to highlight the idea that it's a spell you can cast in Dungeons & Dragons. So unlike real people who live with mental illness, in the context of these games, it's something that you can kind of turn on and off at will and gives gives you an advantage, especially if you're looking around for something or trying to find the way forward proceed with whatever your objective is. And I think that's sort of a key idea. This is the closest thing I've managed to find with what I'm talking about, what I'm seeing in games with madness as superpower. And yet the idea of being able to turn it on and off at will or use magic to turn it on and off is problematic because of course it's not reflective of the lived realities of people who actually live with mental illnesses. And it seems to me too that it's just as a distinction for the listener We're not talking about the kind of traditional Greek clairvoyance or sort of propheticism. It's it's more, as you say, there's something that other people can't see that this ability you can turn on allows you to see. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, some of these characters in these games might also have prophetic visions or some kind of clairvoyance. Maybe they can read minds. But usually it's something that sort of suddenly flashes or suddenly changes what the player is seeing on the screen when you turn it on, turn it off, and it's showing some kind of hidden truth usually. So the way that, uh, in in my article on First Person Scholar, I talk about the games, The Cat Lady and Fran Bow. And in those ones, um, especially Fran Bow, medication is used as the spell, so to speak. So medication is used as the switch to turn on and off these visions. So for Fran, she's a little girl who has various mental illnesses, um, including uh, trauma-induced amnesia. And she is given an experimental drug by a very abusive doctor um, who runs the asylum that she's trapped in at the beginning of the game. Um, I believe the game is set in the 40s. So of course, being a young girl in an asylum, you have very little agency. She's also an orphan. Her parents were recently killed, uh, which is the trauma that induced her amnesia. And so she takes these pills and the doctor knows that they can cause hallucinations, uh, but he wants to use her as a guinea pig, which unfortunately is a pretty common thing, especially that used to happen in asylums, especially to those who are especially 
marginalized like children um, and like people with mental illnesses. And so she takes these pills and they do cause her to see things that weren't there before. And again, that is something that could happen, right? Getting hallucinations as a side effect of taking drugs um, in the real world, especially if you have some kind of um, psychosis or mental illness already. But the key difference in these games is that the things she sees allow her to advance in the story, to solve puzzles, and to see hidden truths, perhaps what a character is actually thinking. So without the pills, the nurse in the asylum seems fine. With the pills, you see that she's actually evil or dark or disturbed or something like that. Or you can see uh, evidence of the kind of um, darkness and trauma and violence that occurs, for example, in this asylum. Um, The same thing happens in The Cat Lady, where uh, she's not in an asylum, but she is in a psych ward after she, well, according to them, attempted suicide. Although in the plot of the game, she actually did succeed. She died. She met the god of death, goddess of death, who uh, forced her to come back to life in order to get rid of a few evil parasites, as they're called. So she's in a psych ward. And actually, her experience in the ward is pretty accurate, unfortunately, to what a lot of people who um, are suicide survivors and are um, sort of forcefully placed in those kind of places in hospitals experience is that there's a lot of um, lack of agency. People don't listen to you because they think you're unhinged. They think you're unstable. They think you're a danger. And so they're not listening to what you're saying. And sometimes you're forcefully sedated. Sometimes you're forcefully given medication against your will. The nurses are portrayed, unfortunately, portrayed as condescending and uncaring. And actually, the doctor turns out to be a serial killer. Oh, bummer. So it's a little extreme. Spoiler (laughs) alert. It's a little extreme. But and of course, like, unfortunately, reinforcing sort of fear towards and negative attitudes towards healthcare professionals. But Considering that in games and popular culture more broadly, it's usually the mentally ill patient in the asylum or the ward who is portrayed as the horrific one, the violent one, the dangerous one, the scary one, instead showing that it can be the healthcare professionals, the one who, ones who have power and are supposedly sane, quote unquote, or neurotypical, are the ones who actually can wield violence. And it's the ones who are especially forcefully institutionalized who actually are the ones without power and the ones who are victims of this like violent medical system. The way the the serial killer doctor sort of goes about his violence is especially targeting women. And so it's tied with misogyny and gender-based violence as well, which unfortunately is, again, another common experience of people who are institutionalized in this way, especially someone like Fran Bo, who would have been a child in an asylum in the 40s, uh, again, with a male doctor who was experimenting on her. Persona non grata, just these people who are not people in their eyes, right? That kind of terror. If I understand you correctly, then you would say that this shift in perspective from an outsider's perspective, looking at the asylum and then the patients are the source of, well, threat, danger, or even evil, it shifts towards a perspective where we take on the view of a patient slash inmate and we see the institutional violence and even just the institutional structures enforcing violence upon us. Does that have a sense of empowerment for mad subjectivities? Would you say so? Yeah, I think it's important. And at the beginning of my article, I 
critique the way that mental illness has been so far usually represented in games as, um, again, that trope of the uh, mentally ill patient who is violent and scary. And you see that a lot in horror media as well, where it's like the ghosts of dead patients, even they are super violent. Or yeah, you get this with like Arkham Asylum, with Batman and that kind of thing. Um, and so it it is it is an important change that instead of us being afraid of or having to fight mentally ill patients, people with uh, with mental illnesses, we are playing as someone with a mental illness. And the Cat Lady is especially interesting because it doesn't shy away from portraying depression and suicidal ideation throughout the entire game. Susan, the main character, she wants to die. Uh, and that's sort of the this reoccurring idea that she has is that she doesn't want to be alive anymore. Um, her depression is so severe. She's forced to against her will by this by the goddess of death. But in the process of, again, using her powers, her madness as powers, uh, in order to take down these evil uh, parasites, one of which being the, the serial killer doctor, she actually saves people and she helps others, and she makes friends, which she didn't have before. She was completely alone. That's why it's called the Cat Lady. She only had cats for companions. And even they didn't live with her. They just came for food and then left. And so at the end of the game, there are a few different endings you can get in that one, but the good ending doesn't have her suddenly magically cured of her depression and happy to you know, be alive and exist anymore. Uh, she still has depression because surprise, surprise, it's not something you can magically get rid of. And she still has suicidal ideation, but it's lessened now. And she has more of a willingness to live because she has made friends, because things in her life, not because of her magical psychosis powers, but because she was able to form connections and have support systems and find people who support her and love her for who she is, depression included, she has more willingness to live. And so it's a message of hope but also, um, as I argue in my article, it's not about curing the mental illness, especially because the institutions and the social structures that push the idea of cure, so hospitals and asylums, that kind of place, they're violent and oppressive, whereas the social structures that are more about healing and finding ways to live with your mental illness and survive with your mental illness um, are more about support systems and kindness and friendship. Um, and that's not to say that medication can't be effective. I want to underscore that for, for, for many, many people, medication is the way that they find the willingness to, to live and, and keep their mental illness at bay, so to speak. But it's not, um, it shouldn't necessarily, I think, be messages about suddenly being cured at the end. Oh, I'm normal now. Like, no, it's, it's not really about that. And same with Fran Beau. She uh, by the end of it, the um, the medication actually stops working. Her psychosis has become so severe that she no longer can differentiate between reality and between the fantasy worlds, which again, the way the game frames it is they may or may not be actually real, who knows, or happening in her own mind, kind of like Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. There's some tangibility that affects the quote real world when she's looking at these things, right? Exactly. The things she does when she's using the pills and seeing the fantasy worlds affect the real world. And I think that is another interesting message that it's not entirely fantasy. I do think there can be problems with that though. So if you try to say like, oh, but what they're seeing is actually really real, 
again, that doesn't reflect the lived realities of people who actually have psychosis because it's it for most of the time it's it's not real what they're seeing and they need to come to terms with the fact that it's not real and remind themselves constantly that it's not real. So again, this message is interesting because again, you're empathizing with these mad characters and they're women who are given agency and sort of pushing this narrative of healing and support structures rather than medication and curing and that kind of thing. But we still come back to the fact that it's portraying, these games are portraying mental illness as a form of, of superpower. Again, like true sight, like they're actually seeing what's really there, which is not accurate, not an accurate depiction. So it is like a double-edged sword because on the one hand, we have this empowerment of the mad subjectivity because we put players in their shoes and we show how the, let's say, simplistic attempt of cure fails or how institutional violence is inflicted upon them. But on the other hand, we also must be cautious not to stray too far in the other direction where it's because for, for the lived reality of most people that suffer or experience the symptoms of a diagnosed mental illness, it's not an option to ride off into the sunset with fantastical friends, but you need to kind of make your way through life and engage somehow with existing healthcare systems and support systems, right, that we have. Exactly. I think of something like, to take it out of the realm of video games, that film, uh, A Beautiful Mind, about mathematician John Nash, it always struck me as very strange because it portrays this man's life as, his hallucinations are good, actually, because they give him the power of math. And, you know, it doesn't really explore that, I, I wish he was able to talk to someone to adjudicate those things and say, no, John, you are still talented. You don't need to suffer like this. We can treat you, right? And I think that that's kind of the failing of that movie. But something you said earlier is this idea that the end is always a cure. I feel like in less nuanced video games, especially, you walk away with, oh, everything's fine now. They went through their trauma. They figured it out. Everything's okay. Whereas I think of a game like, we talk about Silent Hill on the podcast a lot. Silent Hill 2, to me, is a really deep representation of, no, this this man has to deal with this problem for the rest of his life. And maybe he worked through it, but he's going to have to work through it forever. You know, it's not like it's the book is closed. And I think that that's such an important distinction when you're addressing these mental illnesses, because they don't just go away. Exactly. And I think that's why I really like the cat lady, because the ending has this message of hope, like, hey, guess what? You are able to survive and live and actually thrive and make meaningful friendships and help others and have a mental illness, not you know, not despite your mental illness, maybe even because of your mental illness. So she, the friends she made, the the connection she made was with other people who were suffering, other people with mental illnesses as well, other people with sort of fragile situations and with trauma. And so I think, I think there is an important uh, message to, it's not a fun game, maybe, maybe it makes you feel, continue to feel kind of bad, but at the same time, life with a mental illness isn't always fun right and 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 it doesn't manifest usually i assume for most people as a magic power for the most part it actually causes you to constantly have to to struggle to have to to have to work harder than neurotypical people to have to um fight for accommodations for like basic human rights it's a challenge and it's not a challenge to be overcome that's the thing that's that shouldn't be the way we think of it it's a challenge to be accommodated. It should be understood that this is how your mind works. And yes, there, there are many situations where it is something treatable, 
There are other situations where it's not. It's something that you have to live with. Um, and thinking of the way we sort of try to make ourselves as a society feel better by saying, oh, yes, but he's really good at math at least. Or, oh, yes, but she can she can see things that aren't really there. Coming back to D&D, I didn't mention this in my article, but they all, there's also an ability called blindsight, which is where um, you can't use your vision, but you have uh, all your other senses are heightened. And so you have sort of supernatural abilities beyond your sight. And it reminds me of Daredevil, which is it's pretty much exactly the powers that Daredevil has. And that's not to sort of say that that the representation in Daredevil isn't important. It's great to have a blind superhero. That's wonderful. But people who are actually blind don't have those super senses. Like, yes, your other senses do work harder to to compensate for uh, not having vision, but it doesn't mean that you can put on a suit and save the day. On one hand, so it's that fine line you mentioned, that double-edged sword, because on one hand, representation is so important. And yes, we need to see more disabled heroes. On the other hand, it's kind of this narrative of like, yes, but you can't really actually be like that. Uh, so it would be nice if he was blind, didn't have those extra powers, but just was really, really like powerful in other ways, was really good at fighting in other ways, maybe. I don't know. I am not blind, so I can't like say like strongly one way or the other. But to me, it feels a little bit similar to something like these these games where you use your mental illness or your disability as a superpower. On one hand, representation is great. We want these people to be seen as heroes, to be played as, as playable protagonists. But on the other hand, it would be kind of nice if they told stories of people with mental illnesses and disabilities in a bit more of a realistic way, where you could look at it and be like, yes, I have that same disability or that same mental illness, and I could actually do those things. As opposed to, you know, this is fantasy, so this is cool that I'm represented, but I would never be able to like magically see, you know, into the beyond and solve puzzles. <laughs> I think, you know, I haven't played Fran Bo. I will be after our discussion here. But I something that strikes me as really gut-wrenching about that is that I always look at what am I doing as the player, right? What is my role here when I'm interacting with a character like this? And as you were describing that, I kind of got chills because I, I think, how am I any different from this doctor that's making her a guinea pig? And I think that that's a really important way to explore that. Like, look at what you are, how you are exploiting somebody by doing that. I mean, we exploit video game characters in every game, technically, right? For better or worse. And I think a game like that is really powerful because it shows you're taking something that is truly afflicting this person and making it much, much worse, thinking you're doing right by her. Yeah, Franbo is particularly poignant for that because you are the one as the player who's clicking on the pill bottle and making her take pills at, like again and again and again and again to, to, you know, especially if you're having trouble solving the puzzle, you have to go back and forth between quote unquote reality and quote unquote like delusion again and again. And when you realize like what these pills are doing to her, it, it makes you feel bad. And so, yeah, we do, we control these characters and it is a question of like, do we feel like we are these characters? And for someone playing who maybe has similar mental illnesses or similar experiences, it might be more that they feel they are those characters, but there also might be a trauma response, right? Especially with the aggressive use of like experimental medication, the experience of being disempowered and silenced in in some kind of healthcare institution 
even being abused in a healthcare institution. So these stories are not easy. And it's one thing I do dislike about both of these games is that they're psychological horrors. The psychological aspect is a given because it's talking about, you know, psychological uh, mental illnesses, but the horror aspect makes it kind of into a spectacle. In this sense, I actually claimed in my article, it's not making it into a spectacle, but now revisiting it years later and thinking about it a little bit more, and I have played both games uh, a little bit more recently too, the horror aspect is kind of doing this gory shock and awe, uh, especially in Friend Bo, because there's a strong juxtaposition between the like bright colors and cutesy child things, and then you take the pill and it's suddenly horrific and extremely violent. And it's true that for some people, uh, especially with like severe psychosis, what they're seeing can be very dark and violent, very disturbing. And so it, it feels like it's meant to scare you, which could be seen as uh, um, an attempt at empathy. Like, look, you know, she's experiencing these really horrific things, and yet she's still trying her best. She's still trying to help other people, etc. Or it could be oh, look at this big, scary, gory, freaky thing, like kind of like a spectacle for, for entertainment. Horror games do tend to be the ones that portray mental illness the most. And I talk in my article about the problem with games like, for example, Amnesia, The Dark Descent, games that have sanity meters, where the more you are exposed to horrific, scary things or unsettling things, the more you lose your sanity as if it's something you could quantify and that's another way that these games do it in a very problematic way. Like it's not what on one hand, it's you can somehow quantify your sanity. And then once you lose enough of it, then you start hallucinating. On the other hand, you can use medication like in Franbo to turn off and on your visions. And so all of these games, even the ones that we say are maybe trying to do it better, do have their problems um, in terms of, of how they're portraying it. And that might be because they didn't do, the developers didn't do enough research. They don't have mental illnesses themselves. I don't know for sure. Or it could be that that's just how our society sees mental illness. Or it could be that it's just so difficult to portray something that is so inherently internal and subjective. It's tricky. I think that there are some twine games that maybe tell the story a little bit better. Like I'm thinking, um, or, or games that are just a little bit more autobiographical. I'm thinking something like Depression Quest, where people are actually telling their own stories and that don't involve so much horror and gory spectacle. But those ones are maybe, you know, it's tricky. Again, Depression Quest was the site of like a, a huge controversy that then exploded into Gamergate. So it can be very challenging to tell your own stories, especially if it's something a little bit vulnerable. Just a brief observation on Fran Bow, because I've also written an analysis on that and I've been pondering the exact same question that you've just been thinking about, about the effect of this visceral horror and the way it is employed. And I found it peculiar that Fran herself actually is scared of these horrible occurrences at the beginning, but over time she kind of gets used to it and she even has a very playful engagement. I remember that there's one particular scene where you switch realities and Fran discovers her own dead body, disemboweled body on the ground eaten by monsters. And she's like, oh, look, there's my dead body. You know, like kind of this, uh, she has a kind of curious engagement. And it had the same effect on me that at the beginning, I was always scared of like, when I click on this, what's going to happen next? But over time, I adopted Fran's perspective of these things are scary, but they're not going to like, 
actually hurt me. And so over time, I lose this fear and maybe, even just maybe, gain a little bit of control by saying, I'm not going to let my fear from these things determine how I feel and how I react. That's a really beautiful way of putting it. And Franbo is interesting because it's true. At the beginning, the pills make you see things that are very horrifying. And then as the game progresses, the things you see are become less horror and more fantasy. And so there are creepy, definitely creepy, violent elements throughout. But towards the end of it, especially when she like loses the pills and it's is still seeing things that aren't, well, it's ambiguous whether they're real or not, but kind of like Alice in Wonderland. It's like, okay, is this in your mind? And is it is it okay that it's just in her mind, right? Maybe this is her sort of internal journey where she's working through her trauma and trying to figure out exactly what happened, exactly who she is and how she can heal again, rather than suddenly be cured but heal despite everything that's that's she's sort of been through that's happened to her um, because she has suffered extremely. And so there is, on one hand, the danger of escaping into a fantasy world. But on the other hand, she is a child. And that is something that children do as a way, as a defense mechanism. And so I think that there is some nuance there that could be teased out. The developers maybe could have done it a little bit more carefully, But I think that there are a lot of messages that can be teased out there, especially given her positioning as a child and this idea of blurring fantasy and reality as something that could be a coping mechanism that could potentially lead to healing as long as she then emerges from said fantasy uh, and and sort of finds the finds the strength to be able to 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 face her reality um, and come to terms with what happened to her. I wonder if that's almost the if you take out all of the kind of gory things, you know, the, the really creepy imagery, if you have a more benign fantasy world that characters will kind of indulge in to, as you say, escape and maybe deal with their trauma, I think I, I would almost wonder if it would naturally become horrifying at the end where it's not clear whether they're able to distinguish or not. Because on the one hand, okay, maybe they're more comfortable, maybe they feel safer or more in control. But on the other hand, as the player or as the audience member, whatever our interaction is, we recognize, but that's not objectively true, right? And that's in itself really scary for this person. And I, I recognize they're maybe happier than they were at the start, but that seems almost worse than where I would hope they would end up, right? Which is why I do think reminding ourselves that Fran is a child is really important. As opposed to Susan, who is a middle-aged woman, her attempt at escape at being done with it all is through suicide. But she is able to more clearly differentiate and she doesn't necessarily, although there is supernatural stuff that happens to her, like is the goddess of death real, right? Right. Um, but she she does sort of come to terms with things better towards the end. Again, she kind of re-enters reality, re-enters her life and is willing to sort of keep going. It depends on the ending, of course. But whereas, yeah, with Fran, there is always this question of, did all of this just happen in her mind? But she is a child and maybe there is, like, it's not like this game is made for children or anything <laughs> like that. But in terms of, of understanding, maybe someone who's playing, who maybe does have a child with a mental illness could maybe see like, all right, there are ways that we need to approach this that is specific to to a child's mind and, and how we're going to seek professionals that are like explicitly trained in child psychology 
and sort of understanding that there is there is an element of storytelling, an element of fantasy, an element of making friends with the monster, right? Which is something that we see again and again in children's media. It's usually not necessarily tied to mental illness, but the idea of being scared of the dark, scared of something under the bed, if you're unable to rationally realize that that isn't real, that that is just an instinctual fear or just a trick of the light or just a nightmare, then there there is an opportunity for getting a sense of, okay, this fear is something that we need to work with and we need to understand uh, because it's the source of all of these other things that are happening. So you grow up, normally you'll grow out of those, or normatively, I should say, you grow out of those paranoid fears, those hallucinations. But what if you didn't kind of thing? What if those monsters were internal and followed you everywhere? And I think that is something we're seeing a little bit more also in horror media. Like I think of um, the film, The Babadook. Oh yeah. And I know this is like totally out there. Yeah, it's kind of almost similar monsters to actually that, that one in Fran Bo. But basically this idea of using the monster as a metaphor for something else going on. Like in that one, the monster is a metaphor for her grief. And she mm. sort of works through the fact that she is grieving and she also doesn't actually really like her child which I think is actually a really important message that it's possible to be a mother and actually not have that quote unquote natural loving bond with your child, especially if your child is neuroatypical as well, right? So that that famous meme, why can't you be normal, yeah. right? Is, is something that parents of children with mental illnesses and disabilities have probably unfortunately grappled with. And so I think that there are opportunities for even something scary and horrific to tell these kinds of stories, again, in the end with that one, they don't magically get rid of the monster. They learn to live with it, right? And sometimes that's... They both feed him. They feed him, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes that's how you have to proceed. Again, you're not being cured. You can't cure yourself of grief, right? But you can heal and you can learn to to sort of face the world. Uh, and I do think that kind of that kind of um, I don't know maybe new approach to to horror cinema is is something we're also seeing in games uh, like the Cat Lady and Frambo. It's also I think a shifting understanding in what constitutes reality because we have seen such classic tales like The Matrix, where the idea is there's a fake reality in which we live, and then you must awaken to the truth to become the hero and save the day. Uh, which there are many really interesting aspects about The Matrix. I'm just caricaturing the main point here. Whereas what we are talking about when we talk about the Cat Lady and Fran Bow and games such as Hellblade and so on, is that they fundamentally draw into question what even reality is because they don't give us this clear distinction between what is real and what is not. So is the idea of true sight fundamentally not also a question mark behind the object or seemingly objectively shared reality of our daily lives? I think you could definitely read it like that if you're very into this kind of idea that maybe maybe reality is more subjective than we think. And I think that there are a lot of parallels you can draw with the Matrix, especially with Fran Bo taking those red pills, right? And and that's what allows her to awaken and sort of see the the reality behind the sort of behind everything. I do think there's a risk, though, because when you have a mental illness that does make it very easy for you to question your reality, having that narrative of, oh, maybe you're right, maybe reality isn't what we think, maybe reality is fluid, or maybe it's all an illusion, or maybe we're all buying into something, 
that can actually be quite dangerous. And a lot of therapists would probably be like, no, you shouldn't be telling yourself that narrative. Uh, Instead, we should sort of think about how we can come to terms with what reality actually is. Because even if in the end reality is we're all just brains in jars and reality is an illusion, uh, you still have to go about your life, go to work, you know, live your life as though it were real. Because unfortunately, we don't have pills to actually wake us up. So I do think that there's an interesting sort of philosophical question there, definitely. But if we're looking at these games as tools of representation, empathy, understanding for people who have actual lived realities, uh, lived experiences of mental illnesses, that can be maybe not a great (laughs) path to go down. Um, If you're neurotypical and you kind of want to toy with that idea, cool. But if you're, if you actually um, live with a mental illness that does make you question your reality all the time, that can be really really tricky and and really debilitating, actually. I think the the tightrope there, from my understanding, would almost be the danger would be, I, I don't know a good way to put this, but if, if you are having hallucinations or delusions and you encounter something that says, no, actually, the delusions are reality, and because you can see it, you're special, I think that's that can be pretty dangerous for somebody who's going through that where they may not seek the treatment to get better and and move through it, but just stay in it and say, well, no, this is my superpower, right? I don't know how often this happens, but I can definitely see that as, you know, if somebody, if somebody is seeing something that isn't there and they consider themselves to be Neo from the matrix, I feel that's probably a worse reality for them than trying to move through it. Right. Yeah. That it's, yeah. Ultimately, this is really the concept of, of derealization, right? Which is already psychopathologically assessed, but I also feel it kind of this idea of the true side reflects on a certain, maybe you could say an urge that because it's so established in cultural history, an urge to believe that there is something beyond our objectively shared reality, something that we cannot grasp that requires some form of special ability, almost like something to strive for and hero to root for, you could say. That's, that's what I sense at kind of the bottom of this idea of true sight. Yeah, I mean, we as humans have been telling ourselves stories about the supernatural since forever, right? We have ancient myths, we have religions, we have all of these belief systems that tell you that no, there's more than just this, right? Like there's something beyond. And maybe some people are blessed with the ability to see that or sense it more. Um, We have mediums who believe they can you know, touch the the supernatural or touch the beyond, people who believe they can see auras, things like that. And so I think it's something that's very deeply ingrained in human nature. And maybe it's because life sucks and you want to believe that there's something better out there, something beyond or something in the afterlife that is promised to you that is going to be better, or there's some kind of justice that will come in the afterlife that we don't get often in the real world, unfortunately. And so I think there is there is some fundamental human nature aspect here where we we want there to be more. And you even see it with conspiracy theorists, right, who say like, oh, you know, wake up, sheeple like this is, you know, this is just the the illusion that you've you've been telling you the lie that you've been believing. But if you pull the you know, if you pull the wool out from over your eyes, then you'll see that actually la la la. And so as we know with conspiracy theorists, especially that can be, that can be a dangerous slippery slope, right? However, on the flip side, there are normalized systems and structures that we live under that are oppressive and that are artificial. So like capitalism, for example, 
doesn't need to exist the way it does. Money itself is a mutually agreed upon illusion. And so in that sense, there are things that we just accept uh, without critically thinking when really, if we wanted to, as a collective, we could say, no, we don't want that anymore. We don't want to live like that anymore. Um, same with race. Race isn't real. It's not a biological category. We, however, culturally, we've decided that it is something that we're going to use to judge others and oppress others kind of thing. So there are a lot of things that actually, yeah, maybe we should question that we think are part of our reality, but are just are just cultural constructs. Same with gender, right? We can talk about lots of different aspects in that regard. So I think there could be pros and cons to this uh, this this fundamental desire to change reality or shape reality or see what could be. Definitely. And I, I think that that's why games are so useful and powerful because we are, at the end of the day, if you break down every video game, no matter what the content of it is, it is something about, well, I'm exerting control over this world. And I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking, so when we were setting up for this conversation, Stefan brought up the true sight idea and you mentioned Arkham Asylum earlier. My first thought was, oh, like detective mode <laughs> in Batman, where you can, you know, see hints and things like that and i thought oh i guess that's not really it but then i thought well as those games progress there's you know even detective mode especially in arkham knight like it doesn't really tell you what's real and what isn't at that point and there's this kind of inversion of it and i just thought that what an interesting medium to explore how we view or how others may deal with these kinds of things just based on how we use it you know i think it's I, I'm really, uh, probably this weekend, we'll be playing Fran Bo just to experience that because it sounds incredible. <laughs> Enjoy. Thank you. <laughs> Enjoy. And thank you so very much, Sarah, for the conversation. Yeah, you're welcome. This has been a very, very interesting conversation that has taken us into a lot of different areas that even I wasn't prepared for. So this was very, very enlightening. That was great. Thank you so much. says Sarah Stung, Assistant Professor of Game Studies in Brock University in Canada. Thank you so very much for the conversation. Of course, if you're curious and you want to know more, then you can find a couple of articles, including Sarah's PhD in our description, as well as her website, where you can find always more publications that she puts out. Now, before we round off this episode, I want to say a brief thank you uh, it's a little personal segment, if you will allow, Dan, because I want to say thank you to my grandmother, who, as I have just found out, has uh, died today. And I want to say thank you to her for accompanying me for throughout my whole life so far and for giving me so much of power and energy and always supporting me in all my endeavors. You will dearly be missed. And I don't know what to say, quite honestly, <laughs> but this is kind of what I wanted to do. I just want to say goodbye in some form. If I may, I would also like to thank her for molding you into the person you are, because you're a very good friend of mine and I can feel her influence on you. That's for sure. Well, thank you, Dan. And thank you out there for listening to this show. As always, feel free to submit your thoughts and questions to studyingpixels.com slash contact and we're looking forward to hear from you and talk again next week bye bye
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.